Hello, my name's James Paniki. I'm the Brussels Managing Editor at MLEX. Welcome to another one of our special podcasts. I'm sounding a bit congested today, but luckily the person who will be doing most of the talking, Senior Energy Correspondent Laurel Henning, is sounding crystal clear. Hello, Laurel. Hi, James. Now, the great thing about your beat is that although you're obviously covering the daily grind of energy and environmental policy, the regular announcements, the facts and figures affecting the industry across the EU... The supply of energy is important enough to take in geopolitical consideration, so it's very much a big picture uh, kind of a beat. Now, the last time we talked was about the uncertainty over the US's approach to reducing greenhouse gas emissions as a result of the election of Donald Trump to the presidency. Today, we're turning our gaze eastward, uh, and in your feature article, which is associated with this podcast, you suggested that the vacuum in leadership over carbon emissions reductions brought about by Trump's election has, in fact, placed China at centre stage. But why is that? Why exactly would a new US stance on climate policy or the US stepping back from climate policy give China more influence on this issue? Thanks, James. So when this uh, international climate accord that we've alluded to in our last podcast and the last feature we spoke about on this issue and this feature as well, so that's the Paris uh, Climate Agreement that was reached at the end of uh, 2015 uh, by 195 governments as well as the EU to cut uh, carbon emissions. When that was agreed, the real sort of clinching of the deal in terms of credibility hung in the balance of the fact that both the US and China agree to that deal, uh, the world's two largest emitters. And now, with the US being less certain on how that commitment will look over the next four years, or however long Trump's in power, um, China sort of then gains more credibility. So we need to see what China will do. And without action on the Chinese front, I mean, that agreement sort of looks very different. And uh, so in that respect, we're talking about a zero-sum game in the sense that the US pulls out uh, or, or uh, appears to be uh, on, on, the, on the cusp of, of taking less of an interest in this, in this kind of policy. The void is filled by the Chinese, and that's perfectly clear. But where does that leave the EU, which has traditionally seen itself as, as a bit of a leader on climate policy? What are the implications for the European Union? So the EU often talks about its first mover advantage, the fact that it has led the way in terms of drafting climate policy, um, in terms of technological development uh, with renewable power and its move to renewable power. Uh, but really now with this focus on China, the e it's something the EU is aware of. And we've seen, um, I've spoken to various officials who have said that senior um, European Commission officials, I mean the climate chief Miguel Arias Canetier, is talking more and more often with his Chinese counterparts as a result of this. I mean, yeah, significantly as a result of what's happening in the US. And so, so the implication there is that the Europeans might be taking, might realise that there is a power shift underway and they might be uh, attempting to... Um to uh, increase their contact or, the, or, or improve their relationship with the Chinese. Exactly. Now they're, the place where they can sort of carry weight is in, is in negotiations and in teamwork with the Chinese rather than trying to lead from the front still. Mm. And what would the Chinese need to do if they are in, indeed out to influence international approaches when it comes to um, emissions? Well, China, by the end of this year, will be home to the world's largest carbon market. And carbon markets are seen by many, especially in the EU, as sort of the most cost-effective way for industry, 
economies to cut their carbon emissions. So you put a price on carbon and if the price is high enough, which unfortunately it isn't at the moment in the EU, industry is encouraged to plough money and investment into low carbon technologies so that they don't have to pay for their carbon output. So China has been piloting regional carbon markets um, for the last few years and at the end of this year it will connect those regional markets and have a national market that will become the world's largest as I, as I said um, sort of overthrowing the EU from its from its throne as it were um, and then in terms of how other countries might go about developing their carbon markets they will start to look more and more to the Chinese and how they've learned from the EU's efforts and then how other economies can therefore learn from the Chinese. And, and so the, those are, that is the implication isn't it? I mean the implication of China taking a greater role how will that then uh, how will that pan out at an international level? So at an international level, there's that market aspect that we've just spoken about there. And then I think also in terms of funding for developing nations and, and rapidly emerging economies such as China. Um, China has been leading that group of countries in terms of demanding funds um, from wealthier countries that historically are responsible for, for the climate situation that we see today, um, but have those wealthier econ economies have done a lot more in terms of effort in recent years to curb their emissions. So there's a sort of weighing of power and responsibility there, but China has always um, called loudly for funding and help from wealthy nations, and that could be something that has more weight now with, with their increased influence over international talks. And will China uh, stick to any international commitments that it might make, in the sense that we're all obviously aware of China's um, reliance on coal-generated power, Beijing's smog problems, uh, often in international headlines? Uh, are the Chinese going to be able to, to see through whatever commitments they do make? I believe so. Um, of course, you're, you're completely correct in saying China has a, has a coal problem, a coal addiction, you might even say. Um, but also it has an air pollution problem. And at the end of the day, that's a health problem and that's a problem for its economy if people can't work because they're sick. Um, and, and, and so there's an incentive in that sense. Absolutely, yes. to tackle that, to tackle mm. that issue. Um, so I believe it will carry through. It's got some very clear um, commitments that will be seen through uh, through its five-year plans, so they're constantly reviewed because of the way that the Chinese politics and policies are, are set up. Um, so there's constantly checks and balances in place um, for those policies to be seen through in a way that you might not see in other jurisdictions, actually. Mm -hmm. Laurel, lovely talking to you today. Thank you, James. If you haven't read Laurel's feature already, the full title is China Rises from the Ashes of US Climate Policy Uncertainty. It's available outside the paywall, so it's available not just to MLEX subscribers, but also to the wider public. And if you have an interest in environmental and energy policy, we'd obviously encourage you to pass on the link and spread the news. Thank you very much for listening to this MLEX podcast from Laurel Henning and James Paniki. Bye for now.